And so this morning, Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12 is where we're going to be. I invite you to turn there. Most of the, the passages will be on the screen today, but if you've if you got a Bible or you have a device, I encourage you to follow along uh, on that as well. Let's read this passage, let's pray, and let's spend the next few minutes uh, just studying what God's Word has to say. This morning, the message is entitled, The Wonder of the Wise Men. The Wonder of the Wise, wise Men. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, In the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we've seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art art thou not the least among the princes of Judah? For out of thee shall it come a governor that shall rule my people. Then Herod, when he had privily called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child. And when you found him, bring me word again, that I may come and worship him also. And when they had heard the king, they departed, and lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they were coming to the house, they saw, uh, they saw the young child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and they worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. Let's pray and ask God to to teach us this morning a little bit about these wise men. Father, thank you again for for just a great morning. Thank you for our children. Thank you for our drama team. Uh, Lord, thank you that all of that points us to Christ. And thank you that this morning as we open your word, God, that the truth of your word validates everything that we've said and done today, that that we are biblical in our our understanding of the scriptures and, and, and our understanding of the Christmas story. And I pray this morning that you teach us Lord, help us to see these wise men in a, in a new light, in a new lens, and help us to become better worshipers because of what we learned today. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this morning we are, again, three weeks into our Christmas series called The Wonder of Christmas. If you were with us last week, we, we looked at the story of the shepherds that came to the manger, and, and we said last week, if you, if you missed that message, that God has a heart for the shepherd. As a matter of fact, the very first people to see God in the flesh were shepherds. And and they came to him at his birth. They saw him in the manger all through the Bible. God has a heart for the shepherd because many times shepherds in the Bible were a type or a picture of Jesus Christ, who is the good shepherd, who is the the, the great shepherd according to the scriptures, who is the chief shepherd according to 1 Peter chapter 5. And And so now two years have passed And now these wise men make a journey from the east to Bethlehem, and this time they visit Jesus Christ, but he's no longer in a manger, but he actually is in a house. And I'm not here to cause problems this morning, but listen, we got to get the narrative of our nativity right, because listen, those wise men weren't at the manger. They were actually at a house. And they weren't there at his birth. It was actually two years later. And I'm not trying to get on anybody this morning, but listen, don't go home and trash your nativity. But do get a hold of your Bible 
And let's learn what God's Word says. Listen, and, and so this morning as we begin, as we talk about getting the narrative of our, our nativity right, there's a few misconceptions that we need to, to debunk this morning. We're, we're going to have an episode of Mythbusters, if you will, as we begin. And so I know all of your narratives have three wise men at it, right? Three wise men. And as we look at the Bible, man, listen, we have to ask the question, were there three And there's no biblical evidence to support any of that. Now, I know how people get there because they read the passage and they get to the end and there's gold and frankincense and myrrh and they say, hey, there were three gifts, so there had to be three wise men or three kings, and yet there's no number of wise men mentioned in the Bible. As a matter of fact, it was probably a huge entourage that traveled from the east to visit Christ and so, and so, no offense, man, there, there wasn't, you can't find biblical evidence for three wise men. The second myth that many times gets spoken about these wise men is that they were kings. And, and that's very interesting to me. And, and, and there's even been hymns written about this. Anybody know the hymn called We Three Kings? We Three Kings of Orient Are? Do you guys know that one? Do you know the words? Do you want to come up and sing it? Okay, okay, I just, I mean, we had a lot of good music, and by the way, you won't sing it as good as our kids, so just forget it. But listen to this, we three kings of Orient are, bearing gifts we traverse afar, field and fountain, moor and mountain, following yonder star. And that's very good, and and again, it was written by a man named John Henry Hopkins Jr., and it may be a good hymn, but it may not necessarily be good doctrine, And the reason why is because kings are different than wise men, and wise men are different than kings. As a matter of fact, if you were to study wise men in the Bible, every time you find it, they're servants. They're servants under a king or under a different authority. And again, man, again, debunking all the myths, a lot of people say that these wise men came from the Orient. They came from Eastern Asia. Some people even say... They came from China. Well, that's very interesting to me because, again, uh, how do you get there? And in just a few minutes, I'm going to give you the answer. So don't go to lunch early. Uh, I want to show you where these wise men, I believe, biblically came from. But, man, I don't think they were from the Orient. And, again, the last myth is the fact that these wise men were there at Christ's birth. And as a matter of fact, they show up two years later. And so there's a difference between a babe and a young child, there's a difference between a manger and a house. There's a difference. And we want to be biblical and give God's word the authority in our life. And man, if you have a nativity, praise the Lord for that, whatever, you can can learn from that. But let's, we also have a Bible. And so let's make sure that God's word is authoritative in our life. And so this morning, as we begin to unpack this passage, I want to share with you the first point. And I want to talk about the identity of these, these wise men. The identity of these wise men. Who are these people that came and worshipped Christ? And who are they that came and presented gifts to Christ? Well, we know this. We know the Word of God tells us that they came from the East. And as we study the Bible, man, in the East, in its relation to Jerusalem and Israel, man, there's some key people that are mentioned in the Bible. One man in particular, Job was one of the greatest of all the men, the Bible says, of the East. In Job chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, and by the way, he was in the land of Uz. And so so it's interesting, this, this land of the East and these men of the East actually show up prominently in the Bible, and and wise men show up prominently in the Bible in several different places. 
In Egypt, in Exodus chapter 7, Pharaoh is the king of Egypt. And he had wise men, and he had sorcerers, and he had magicians of Egypt. And they did also in their like manner. And and so we know that Pharaoh was the king of Egypt. And and listen, he had servants that were wise men. And some of them were astrologers and sorcerers and magicians. They were subservient to him as the king. They were servants. But listen, these couldn't possibly be the wise men that actually showed up many years later at at Christ's birth and, and, and to visit Christ as a young child. Because Egypt is not east of Israel and Jerusalem. Any geography people in the house? It's south. And, and so as we study the Bible, we have to ask the question, where are the wise men from the east? And I think we find it in Daniel chapter 2, verse 48. The wise men that came from the east would have came from a place called Babylon. Now, if you've read the Bible in the Old Testament, you know that the nation of Israel went into Babylonian captivity. They, they were taken hostage by Nebuchadnezzar, a pagan king, a Gentile king, and they were taken into captivity because of their rebellion against God. And so just a side note, don't rebel against God because there's consequences. There's captivity that comes from that. And so the entire nation was taken captive and some of the young men were taken to a place called Babylon. One of those young men was a man named Daniel. And if you've read the book of Daniel, it's an amazing passage that talks about that time of captivity. And the Bible says in Daniel 2 and verse 48 that the king made Daniel a great man and gave him many great gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief of the governors and over all the wise men of of where? Of Babylon. And, And listen, geographically, Babylon would have been east of Israel. It would have been what modern-day Mesopotamia or modern-day Iraq. Geographically, that's where it is. And you know the story, man. Israel was taken captive, but there was a man of God named Daniel that was part of that captivity. And so during his time in Babylon, God gave him favor. As a matter of fact, God used him to interpret dreams that nobody else could interpret. He had access to God's knowledge and God's wisdom that other people, especially those pagans in in Babylon, did not have. And he shared it when, when he had the opportunity. And because of that, God blessed him. God gave him favor. God gave him position of authority, even in that pagan kingdom. So much so that in Daniel chapter 5, Daniel is promoted over all, all the wise men. Listen, Daniel 5, verse 11. Check this out. It says, There's a man in thy kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods, and in the days of thy father light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, was found in him, whom whom the king Nebuchadnezzar thy father the king, I say, thy father made master of the magicians and the astrologers and the Chaldeans and the soothsayers, for as much as an excellent spirit and knowledge and understanding interpreting of dreams, showing of hard sentences, dissolving of doubts, were found in the same Daniel, whom, king, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. God gave favor to Daniel in this pagan kingdom, and he rose to a position of prominence and power, and he was over All of the wise men, all of the magicians, all of the astrologers, all the soothsayers. 
And can I just tell you that because of Daniel's faithfulness in the midst of captivity, years later, people that were impacted through his life and legacy knew that God was going to do something in Jerusalem. You say, when we're talking about Christmas, we sure are. Now let me ask you a question. How have you been faithful with God's word in your situation and circumstances? And who will benefit maybe generations later because of how you've been faithful to God's word? Hello? Man, Daniel didn't get to see it. But his investment of God's word faithfully in the midst of his circumstances led to generations later a group of people, a group of wise men in the east that had access to what God was doing and responded rightly to the revelation they had. Uh, Maybe you could call them disciples of Daniel. Generations later, now coming to Jerusalem because they understood what God's word and the man of God said about the coming king. And And so get this key in your notes. These wise men would have been Gentiles, They would have been Gentiles who were affected and impacted specifically by a man named Daniel because God gave Daniel, God gave these men Daniel. He gave these men a man of God with the Word of God. And because they had access to that, they knew what to do and when to do it. And listen, every one of us live in a place, we live in a community, we have a job, we have a family, we have neighbors And listen, God has put you as a man or woman of God in the midst of your circumstances and environment to have an impact. To have an impact. And the way you have an impact is you open God's Word and teach it to anyone willing to hear it. And you don't know how many generations later the effect of that will be and the impact of that will be. And so God gave them Daniel a man of God. Secondly, God gave them a star to lead them. And Davis did an awesome job illustrating that this morning for us. He gave them, God gave them a star. And listen, stars in the Bible are part of God's creation. They're part of the general revelation of God. Many people come to the Bible and they begin to try to explain this phenomenon of what happened in Matthew 2 through a natural explanation. Well, that had to be some kind of comet, right? Or that had to be some kind of shooting star. Or, you know, if the planets get in alignment just perfectly, then it looks like a star that moves. Okay, and those are all humanistic explanations. God does tell us in Psalm 19 and verse 1 that the heavens declare the glory of God. God's creation bears witness that there is a God. As a matter of fact, creation and conscience are available to every human. You say, what if they don't have a Bible? How do they know God? They have creation and they have their conscience. You can go to the darkest, deepest parts of Africa and people in the deepest, darkest parts of Africa know the difference between right and wrong. How do they know that? Because they have a conscience. Because they have a conscience, according to Romans chapter 2, and according to Romans chapter 1, they have creation that bears witness. Romans chapter 1 and verse 20 says that the invisible things of Him, of God, from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead. Listen, so they are without excuse. You see, there's no man, there's no woman, there's no child on this earth that will stand before God in judgment and say, I didn't know you existed. Because God's given us a creation that bears witness. 
even to the power of His Godhead. God's given us a conscience that bears witness of a moral law that God has established and written in our hearts. But I want you to understand that this star that God gave them wasn't just a, a star, like, like a star that we know, like in, in, in the heavens. There's something interesting and unique about this star. As a matter of fact, if you look at Matthew 2, the Bible calls this star His star. It, it's called His star. If you go further down in the passage in verse 9 and 10, it says, it says that star in, in verse 9, it came and it stood over where the young child was. That's very interesting to me. Stars belong in space, right? They belong in what the Bible calls the firmament of heaven or the second heaven, if you will. But, but listen, this star moved, this star stood, and this star, it seems to be, was in this atmosphere, in this sky, not in outer space. And that's very interesting to me. And the reason that that happened is because this star is unique. This star is, is, is very unique. How, how, did, how did these guys even know to follow a star? How did they know that? Well, I think they had access to what Daniel had taught them. They had access to the Word of God. And Daniel, being a faithful steward of God's Word, probably would have taught them Numbers 24. And let me give it to you. Numbers 24, verses 17 to 19, is a prophecy about Christ, the coming King. And it says, I shall see Him, but not now. I shall behold Him, but not nigh. There shall come a... A what? And that's a capital S, right? It's a proper name. There shall come a star out of Jacob... And a, and a scepter, and a king has a scepter, by the way. That's authority, that's rulership. And a scepter shall rise out of Israel and shall smite the corners of Moab and destroy all the children of Seth. And Edom shall be a possession and Sarah also shall be a possession for his enemies. And Israel shall do valiantly. Out of Jacob shall come he that shall have, listen, dominion. And shall destroy him that remaineth of the city. And so, and so, man, this star is unique. In Matthew chapter 2, this star is not just a star in the heavens. It's not just one of the multitude of stars. Listen, when you study the Bible, stars are likened to men. If you go back and read God's promises to, to Abraham, to Abram who became Abraham, he says, I'm going to multiply your seed as the stars, plural, of heaven. But listen, we're not talking about stars, plural. We're talking about a single star. We're talking about one. And so grammar matters when we study the Bible. And listen, when you study the word star in your Bible, well, it, it's a very narrow list. It's a very narrow list. And it actually points to one person. It points to the person of Jesus Christ. Look at 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 19. Peter says, We have a more sure word of prophecy, Whereunto you do well to take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Christ is likened and described as the day star. In Revelation 22 and verse 16, Jesus Christ is called the root and offspring of David, the bright and morning star. You say, well, who is that star? And how could it be Christ if Christ is in the house? I don't know, man. 
I, don't explain, I can't explain it, I don't understand it, but I know that every time you read the Bible and you study the word star, it's very precise, it's very unique, and identifies with the person of Jesus Christ. And so this star that was given to these Gentiles, it led them to the person who is the king. And then lastly, God spoke to these, these Gentiles through a dream, and we'll see that in a second. At the end of the story, God, God even gave them additional revelation through a dream. Now listen, God doesn't speak through that term or that, that form today, and so you have a complete Bible, so you don't need dreams and visions of the Lord because God's given you a final authority. But man, in Matthew chapter 2, they didn't have a Bible like you've got, and so God continued to speak through dreams as he revealed himself. And so these wise men would have been Gentiles. They would have been from the east, and they would have been from Babylon. And so let's get to the meat of the message, point number two, because I want to show you the priority of these wise men. Now that we know who they are, what was their focus? What was their point? And they said in verse two, where is he that's born king of the Jews? We've seen his star in the east, and we're come to worship him. And so let me give you a couple of things that I think are amazing out of this passage. Number one, these wise men were pursuing a person. They were pursuing a person. They said, where is he? And he is a, a pronoun. And don't get me started on the English language this morning. By the way, you can't steal pronouns for yourself uh, you, because that's language for the record. It's part of the structure of the English language. And so they, they had no gender identity problems in, in Matthew chapter 2. They were looking for a him, a he, according to the word of God. And that he is the king of the Jews. And so the first question that's ever asked in the New Testament is asked by a group of men who are wise, who are seeking a king. That's how your New Testament opens. Because Matthew is the book of Christ as the king. He's the king of the Jews. And so get this in your notes, man. That king was sought at his birth. From the very beginning, there were people showing up desiring to meet and to worship the king because a king is worthy. Amen. A king is worthy. And, and let me just tell you, man, and again, I don't want to give away the end of the message, but, but man, what is your purpose and priority in coming to Christ? You see, you see, these men showed up with the right priority. They came to worship a king. And man, we get that a little backwards, I think, in our culture of Christianity. Like, like, at, like at Christmas time especially, we, we, uh, we would rather get than give. We would rather come to Christ for what we can get rather than what we can offer Him in worship. And now listen, the gift of salvation is free. And listen, if you don't have that gift, you need to come to Christ to receive forgiveness of your sin. That's a free gift available. It wasn't free in the sense that it didn't cost anything. As a matter of fact, it cost everything. It cost the most precious thing in this universe, the very blood of Christ. And so you can come and receive that gift. And once you've received that gift, man, it ought to be about how you worship the King. What can you bring to worship? Well, that's, you know, I'm trying to get, not get ahead, but I'm getting ahead. But man, listen, these wise men sought him at his birth. They positioned themselves to worship the king. Number two, this king was mocked at his death because you've read the New Testament. 
And in Matthew, during Christ's crucifixion and his mock trial, can I just tell you that they mocked the fact that he was the king of the Jews. Man, Matthew 27 and verse 11, Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said unto him, thou sayest. In other words, you got that right. That's in the J translation, by the way, if you... Yeah, bro. <laughs> you know it, right? That's what he said. Hey, are you the king of the Jews? Uh, you got it. That's right. Matthew 27, verse 29. Man, they platted him with a crown of thorns. They put it upon his head. They, they, they had a reed in his right hand. They bowed the knee before him. Listen, and they mocked him saying, Hail, king of the Jews. Man, Christ's kingship was sought at his birth. But at the time of his death, man, it was mocked. Matthew 27, verse 37, as he's hanging on the cross, they set up a a sign over his head with his accusation written, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews, in mockery at his death. Let me just tell you, the story doesn't end there, by the way, in Matthew 27. Because the king will become the king, and he will be the king of the Jews, and by the way, he'll be the king of all at his second coming. So ultimately, Christ's kingship will be fulfilled at his second coming. And, and, and we got 1 Timothy chapter 6 that calls Christ the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Can I read Revelation 11, verses 11 through 16? Do you guys, you guys okay with that on a Christmas message? Revelation chapter 11. The Bible says, I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he to judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and that he should rule them with a rod of iron. Not a reed, by the way. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written. Here it is. King of kings and Lord of lords. Man, that king will be the king. And there won't be any question. There won't be any mockery. There won't be making fun. There won't be platting things over his head and putting a false crown on him and a false robe on him. He will come in all of his glory to exercise his dominion and authority over all creation. But here's what you need to understand. You need to learn from these wise men that you can worship Him as the King now. Now. You can come to Christ as King now. You see, they had a priority to worship the King. Number two, they were prompted by a star. And we talked about Numbers 24 and verse 17, how the Old Testament prophesied that that star was going to come out of Jacob. And that star is always associated with a scepter because a scepter belongs to a king. And and there's a ton of references, and we don't have the time this morning. God tells us in Genesis 49 and verse 10 that the scepter is not going to depart from Judah. But but the lawgiver is going to come from, from Judah and unto Shiloh he's going to come, and unto him shall be the gathering of the people. And so, and so listen, this, this, this star represents not only the, 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 the fulfillment of Numbers 24, but it represents the impact of the scepter and the prophecies concerning that in Christ, in Christ himself 
He is the star. He is the scepter that's promised. Number three, these wise men pursued despite inconvenience. And so listen, if these guys came from the east, well, this would have been a long, arduous journey. As Davis taught us this morning, it would have taken months, possibly even a year to get there. It would have been expensive. There's no airlines or trains or anything like that. And so listen, man, if you've traveled, you know it's inconvenient. And even more so. And so they're, they're cashing it all in. They're cashing it all in. Believing what they believe about that star from the Word of God. No doubt an inconvenient journey. I mean, listen, if you pull up a map and you study Babylon and you see how far it is east of Jerusalem, that would have not been a short journey. That would have been an expensive journey. That would have been a demanding journey. If they had families or children, that would have been absolutely difficult. But it would have been a journey of a lifetime, full of risk and yet eternal in reward. So let me ask you a question. How, how inconvenienced are you willing to be to come worship the king? Well, we don't like inconvenience in our culture. Man, if the temperature is not right in the room, we're going we're gonna to grab a deacon, right? Hey, man, it's hot in here. It's cold in here. The coffee's not hot enough. We ran out of donuts. The lighting is not just right. The sound is not just right. Man, we are absolutely, and God forbid we get here early. Okay, that was free. <laughs> And we don't like being inconvenienced. And yet, a king is worthy of being inconvenienced. Worshiping the king, by the way, is worthy of every inconvenience there is. Worshiping him, bringing to him what he's worthy of, truthfully, is no inconvenience at all. And number, number next, number four, I think, is, is that these wise men were positioned for worship and and again, I've already mentioned it, but, but their initial purpose in coming to Christ wasn't to get something from Him. It was actually to give something to Him and to worship Him. And listen, I, I want you to understand again that there is a gift of salvation available in the person of Jesus Christ. There is forgiveness of sin available, and you can receive that today through faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross of Calvary. But listen, if, if you have received that, then we as believers need to position ourselves as worshipers of Christ Almighty because He is the King. We need to stop coming to Christ to get because we've already gotten more than what we deserve. Man, what can you give? And I'll tell you some things that you can give. Number one, you can give your life. You say, well, that's a lot. Well, listen, he gave his life for you. Is that unreasonable? To, to take the life that is in Christ and exchange it for the dead life of sin that I have. That's not unreasonable. As a matter of fact, that's the greatest deal going. You can give Christ your life. You can give him your worship. As we, as we see in the passage, you can give him your treasure. You can give him your time. You can give him your focus. He can become the priority of your life, not just to add on on Sunday morning for an hour and a half. Man, they position themselves for worship. Let me, a couple comments about this. Number one, let me show you that they had a corporate nature of their worship. You see, this was a group of people coming together. It was a corporate worship. 
Because it was wise men, plural, not a wise man. Well, I can just worship God at home in the privacy of my home. I can worship God in my own way. Listen, you can do that for sure, but that's just not biblical. Because God says we're to come together to worship. And so these wise men came together to a central location for a central purpose, to worship God. And, and I, I won't bore you with the details, but Timothy calls the church of God the house of God. Christ was in the house, and they came to the house to worship Christ. So if you're going to worship Christ, you're going to worship Him corporately in the house of God. In both instances of the Christmas story, man, both the shepherds and the wise men, there's a plurality of individuals that corporately come together. And so God shows us in this passage that, that corporate worship is important. You know, Psalm 122 and verse 1 says, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. We used to sing a song back at Decatur Baptist uh, with, that, with that lyric, with that verse as the lyric, and, and I, I'll, I'll spare you my singing this morning because uh, you would boo me off the stage. But, but I'm telling you, it's a catchy tune and it's biblical. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go. It's corporate. It's together. It's with a body of believers that understand that Christ is king. And so, and so, man, you ought to be a part of a corporate body that gathers together. And I know it's hard to get here on Sunday. I mean, I get it. And just leave earlier. And we got coffee and we'll just get more donuts. We want you here because the point of our, our gathering is so that we can be positioned to worship him. And then number two, man, listen, let me just show you the costly nature of their worship. Because when they came, Man, they fell on their face and they opened their treasures. So they had something to offer. They presented unto him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And, and man, we don't have the time to go through this, but, but, but just doctrinally speaking, what you have is a picture of the millennium where, where Gentiles are bringing their gifts to a king that's on the earth who is the King of kings and Lord of lords, and even the Gentile nations are worshiping Him together. And there's a, a group of people that are actually trying to kick Him off the throne, even in the millennium. And so we can go get coffee and talk about that a little bit later. But, but let me just tell you, if you're going to worship Christ, it's going to cost you something. What did they offer this King? Well, they offered Him three things. Number one, they offered Him gold. And gold is a gift for a king. I mean, gold is the most valuable material in God's economy. I mean, we don't even have time, man. You, did you guys pack a lunch today? You didn't. Okay. Uh, listen, man, if you study the judgment seat of Christ, there's some rewards given out, gold, silver, and precious stones. And, and there's a connection back to the judgment seat of Christ of, of living your life in submission to God's authority in your life. It, it represents your worship of the King. And there will be people that don't have anything to offer Christ when they see Him. And the reason why is because they didn't, they didn't submit to Him. He wasn't their authority. He was their Savior, yes. He redeemed them from their sin, yes. But man, that's where their walk with Christ ended. You see, gold always represents deity. I mean, when you study the Old Testament tabernacle, all the instruments and the furniture were covered with gold. The mercy seat was covered with gold. The table of showbread and the altar was covered with gold. The candlesticks were gold. And we, we put value on gold down here. And God puts value on gold in His, in His Word. It's always associated with deity and rulership. 
And they offered it to him. And the truth is, we need to offer our submission. The way you, you say, man, I don't have anything to offer. Well, if he is the king, you can submit. You can yield your life to his authority. And by doing that, you lay up for yourself treasure in heaven. Secondly, they gave him frankincense. And, and frankincense is a gift for a priest. And there's an interesting story about frankincense. Listen, it's tapped from a, a specific type of tree. From a, uh, in the process of, of harvesting, it comes from cutting the bark of this type of tree called stripping the bark. And the resin of that tree literally, quote-unquote, bleeds out and hardens. And then the, the frankincense is harvested. It's a very unique type of tree. And, and can I just tell you that frankincense always points us back to the priestly duty of Jesus Christ. He was, he, was, he was stripped and He bled out for our sin. He is the high priest that makes intercession for us through His finished work on the cross. If you go back to Exodus chapter 30, that, that frankincense was part of the, 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 the Levitical priesthood. There was an oil that was made for anointing from pure frankincense and God says of that oil that it's going to be holy and so frankincense frankincense points us to the priestly ministry of Christ and how he interceded on our behalf how he was stripped of his glory how he bled out and died for our sin and because he's our high priest we can go to God at any point you can go to God right now and you don't need to come to me and tell me what you need prayer for you can go to God through Christ at any point in life, at any point in time, because he is our highly priest, high priest that makes intercession for us. So you can offer God your petitions. You can come to God and worship him through prayer. Thirdly, they offered him myrrh. And man, myrrh is a gift for a prophet. And again, I, I wish we had an hour on each of these. We don't because you're looking hungry already. But, but, but myrrh, Myrrh is a bitter gum. It's a costly perfume. Again, it comes from a certain type of tree or shrub. And again, it's obtained by making marks in the bark. And, and it, was a used, it was used as an antiseptic. It was used in embalming. Myrrh in the Bible is only mentioned three times in the New Testament. And, and these wise men in Matthew 2, they brought it to Christ at His birth. They offered to Him myrrh at His birth. The second time Christ was given myrrh, it was given to him at his death. And the third time it was given, it was given at his burial when they wrapped him for the burial. And it shows us Christ's office as the prophet. And so Jesus Christ is king, he's, he's priest, and he's prophet. And as such, all three of these gifts represent and present to Christ the value of who he is because he's worthy of all three gifts. And man, these wise men, they worshiped him. And they gave him gifts because he's worthy. And the truth is, he's still worthy today. You can come to a house, and it's not a house that Jesus is literally physically in, but spiritually he's here because this is his body, the body of Christ. And you can worship him, and you can give your gifts to him, and you can bow your knee and submit to his word and his authority just like these wise men. Man, it's wonderful what God has painted in a picture for us in Matthew chapter 2. Let me show you the last thing, and, 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 and then we'll finish the notes. Man, these wise men, they pivoted in obedience. And so after they came to Christ, and after they bowed the knee, and after they offered their gifts, and after they worshipped Him, verse 12 says, 
And being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country. Last two words are important. How did they return? They, they returned another way. You see, they responded rightly. God gave them more revelation. Don't go back to Herod. And, and the truth is, if he would have went back to Herod, they, they would have been killed. And so listen, anyone that comes to Christ can't go back the same way. God's going to change the direction of your life. And so now we're called to pivot in obedience to His Word after we've worshipped. I mean, Matthew 2 sounds like a, lot, a lot like a church service, doesn't it? They corporately gathered, they worshipped, they got revelation from God, and they walked out the doors walking a different way. That sounds like every Sunday morning. How we should approach every time God's Word is open. Now listen, why in the world did God tell them not to go back the same way that they came? Well, there's a dude named Herod. And if you study the Bible at all, you know that Herod is a picture of, of, of the, the devil. He's a picture of the Antichrist, and he wants to murder. As a matter of fact, later in the passage, you're going to find that he murders a whole lot of people. A whole lot of children, two years old and under. He's a murderer. He's a, he's a picture of Satan. He's a picture of the Antichrist. And listen, God knows that after you worship Him and you yield to Him, He knows that you have an enemy out there. And so God wants to change where you walk and how you walk. And, and so, you know, Pastor Alan Shelby, one of the Living Faith pastors, says, you know, you can come to Christ as you are, but you can't stay as you is. And that may not be good English, but it is good doctrine. Because once you come to Christ, you need to be changed by His Word. And God's word and his commandments, they're not grievous to us. God knows there's an enemy on the outside waiting to devour and to destroy you. And that's what biblical ministry is, man. It's a warning ministry. You know, no offense, man. It's sometimes tough to do what we do in presenting God's word. But you need to understand that biblical ministry is a warning ministry. Because if you won't take heed to the warning, you'll fall susceptible to the enemy. And man, some of us have. And the reason we have is because we heard God's word, we just didn't respond rightly to it. And man, the devil got a foothold in our life, the flesh got a foothold in our life, the world continues to tempt us, and we fall in love with it. And the reason why is because we didn't heed the word of God that God gave us. If these men would have went back to Jerusalem, Herod would have killed them. And God said, I don't, want you, I don't want you to get killed. I want to warn you to keep you from danger. And man, that ought to be our perspective of the Word of God. You know, when Paul spent three years in Ephesus, in Acts chapter 20 and verse 31, he tells the elders at Ephesus, he says, Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. Biblical ministry is just a warning ministry. And after you come to Christ and worship Christ, and you should for who He is, you ought to heed His Word. Because God cares enough about you to give instruction specifically to you so that you don't walk into the mouth of the enemy. And so they pivoted in obedience, and because of that, their life was saved. Let's look at the last point we're done this morning. Number three, the, the perplexity of Herod. And so, and so as we kind of wind down, again, we could talk a lot about all the things in this story, but, but let me just show you the other side of the coin, this man named Herod. 
It says, when Herod the king heard these things, when, they heard, when he heard that there was a king of the Jews had been born, man, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him. And when he gathered together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And they said unto him in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it's written by the prophet, and thou Bethlehem in the land of Judah, art thou not least among the princes of Judah? For out of thee shall come a governor, and he shall rule my people Israel. And by the way, if, if you haven't studied this, you should study it because, man, these Herods that are in the Bible, the Herod dynasty in the Roman government, let me just tell you, it is a long, morbid, vulgar, complicated history of family troubles, shady business deals, fits of temper, Roman politics, moral filth and atrocity. And I know you're thinking I'm talking about current and past administrations of the U.S. government, but listen, these Herods were Jew-hating, truth-denying, power-hungry politicians. That's who they were. This would have been historically Herod the Great, Matthew chapter 2 and verse 1, Herod the King. Just a side note, again, I mentioned this last week, you can't deny the historical record of the Bible. The Bible's historical record is 100% accurate. And so naysayers of the Scriptures are going to have a real hard time validating the fact that there is no historical error in the Bible. So, you know, skeptics are welcome to, to entertain that conversation. But, but listen, the historical record of the Bible is 100% accurate. Herod's a real person. He had a real reign. God's Word tells us exactly where he is and who he is. Herod didn't demand if Christ was born. He demanded where Christ was born. And that, that's very interesting to me because Herod was a Bible believer. And yet he was lost. He was a pagan. He was interested in self-preservation. Herod wasn't agnostic and he wasn't an atheist. He was a Bible-believing pagan. And when he heard from the Word of God where the King of the Jews was going to be born, he took action. He believed the Bible so much that he was willing to murder based on it. Now listen, we got Baptists don't, that don't believe the Bible that much in our churches. But he believed the Bible enough to act on the information that he had. And so what did he do? Matthew chapter 2 and verse 16, man, the Bible tells us that when those wise men didn't go back to Herod, that he slew all the children that were in Bethlehem and all the coasts thereof from two years old and under. What a wicked, wicked, wicked man. And so get this key point in your notes. We're not done, but get, I know this is the last blank in your notes, and I'm cautious to give you this, but I'm going to go ahead and give it to you. Man, not every Bible believer has the right motive. The question is, do you? Herod is interested in self-preservation, not Christ's worship. And Herod, like many people today, try to outwit God with their human wisdom. And yet, based on God's Word and the authority of God's Word, that always ends in failure. You see, Herod was concerned that he would lose his position and lose his authority. He wasn't ignorant of God's Word because once he received it, he acted on it. But he acted on it in self-preservation interests. He was head of the Roman government. It was a worldwide kingdom. Again, this foreshadows what's going to happen at the second coming of Christ and the millennial reign of Christ. You have these chief priests and scribes. They were concerned that they would lose their religion if there was a true king of the Jews. And so they sold out and they told Herod, 
There's where he is, knowing that he was going to kill him. It is interesting to me that you have Herod, the chief priest, and the scribes all working in cahoots together against the rightful king. You have a great picture of the satanic trinity there, by the way. That's free. So here's the, here's the question. What is your motive in receiving God's word? What is your motive? Is it truly to drive you to be a worshiper of God? You know, some people want to know the Bible so they can know every nuance of the Bible so they can justify their carnality and their sin and their rebellion against God. I know those people aren't here today, but when you run into them, you'll know. They don't have the right motive. And so, and so as we consider these wise men, I think there's a couple of practical takeaways. You can close your Bible. We're done. But let, but let me challenge you maybe with three thoughts. Number one, you know, we started this story with these wise men and their identity. Who are they? Where did they come from? How did they know to follow the star? Well, the reality is that they had a man in their life named Daniel that left a legacy of faith and left the authority of God's word in their life so that they could respond rightly to it. So here's the first question. Who are you willing to learn from to become a true worshiper of Christ? You see, those wise men didn't become wise on their own. They had help. They allowed a captive Jewish young man who became an old man in multiple kingdoms to influence them through the Word of God. Does that sound like discipleship to you? Does that sound like a willingness to learn God's Word, to submit yourself to learn God's Word from people that know God's Word so that you can truly become a worshiper of Christ? Man, are you willing to do that? Number two, how far are you willing to be inconvenienced to worship Christ? I mean, how far are you truly willing to go to truly worship God? Oh, that's just too far of a drive, man. That's just too early. Uh, ch church more than once a week, man, that's just too difficult for my schedule. Uh, you know, discipleship, that's going to cost a lot of time and, and effort and energy. I just don't have that in my busy schedule. I got a lot of other things I have to work around. I just don't have time to read my Bible or pray. And listen, again, how inconvenienced are you willing to be to truly worship God? It all boils down to a matter of priority. What are you willing to lose to worship the king? You see, Herod wasn't willing to lose his position. He wasn't willing to lose his power. He wasn't willing to lose his authority. His kingship was challenged. And so was every Christian's. Because if we're going to make Christ king, that means that we can't be. We can't be. What are you willing to lose to worship the rightful king? And what are you willing to offer? Man, you have some things, prayerfully you have some things to offer. Gold, frankincense, myrrh. You know, your submission to Christ as king is a worship of gold. Your petition to Christ as the high priest is a, is a, wor a worship, it's a giving of frankincense. And listen, giving your life to the prophet of God, man, that's myrrh. That's myrrh. We ought to be willing to lay aside all authority, all religion, all power, all influence, and all reputation so that we can worship the one who's worthy. Amen? That's the wonder of the wise man. Let me pray for us and we'll dismiss. Father, God, I thank you for your word. And, and Lord, as we look at this passage, God, it, it breaks so many of our 
preconceived no- misnomers about the story, the, the, the things that we see in our culture, maybe even things that we grew up learning about the story. God, your word has a way of cutting through all of that. And Lord, we want to be wise men today, understanding that the way we become wise is by learning your word. God, for some of us this morning, we need to be challenged that the truth is we don't even know enough of your word to follow you. We wouldn't know where to worship and how to worship and and when to worship you like these wise men did, because the truth is we don't have an understanding of God's word. And God, if that's us today, help us to, to repent of that. Help us to respond rightly. Help us to know that we need to be a part of a church and a, and a family of believers where we can learn the word of God together so that we can walk with you and worship you. Father, maybe people here like that today, they, they need to grow. And I pray you challenge them with that. Father, for some of us, we need to understand that it is an inconvenience, but when we have the right priority, nothing else matters and we're willing to go the extra mile, we're willing to go whatever may be inconvenient for us in this life to truly give you the worship you're, you're worthy of, that you deserve. God, for some of us, we need to realize that, that, man, our life, our priority has taken the precedence. And God, I pray that you, you help us overcome that through faith in your word. God, for some of us, we need, need to submit to your authority. We need to submit to your kingship We need to come as these wise men looking for a king first. And God, may we yield our life to you. With your heads bowed and eyes closed, let me just ask you a couple of questions. We're done, but I want to pray for you today. Some of you may be here and you may be saying, you know what, the truth is I need to learn to be a worshiper of Christ. And obviously, maybe I'm saved, but the truth is, biblically, I need to grow in the word of God so that I can truly worship Christ the way he is worthy of. If that's you, can I pray for you? Would you raise your hand and say, man, that's me. God bless you. Raise your hand. God bless you. Take your hands down. Maybe you're here today and you say, you know what, Jay, I I view worship as an inconvenience to me, but this morning I understand Christ is worthy. He's worth the long drive. He's worth the time. He's worth my treasure. He's worth whatever inconvenience I may consider and assume. He's worthy of it all because he's the king. And I I need to get right with him Quit making excuses of why I can't worship him and just surrender it to him. And if that's you today, let me pray for you. You would say, man, that's me, Jay. I want to worship him rightly. No matter what my circumstances are, he's worth coming to worship. Would you raise your hand? Let me pray for you. God bless you. Maybe you're here today and you need to learn to just submit to him. You know God's word. Maybe you've been warned of some things in your life. And yet you've made the choice to go back. You haven't walked another way. And man, that enemy, the devil, that roaring lion is after you. Your flesh is after you. This world system is after you. And if you'd only have heeded God's word, man, you wouldn't be in the mess that you're in. Man, would you surrender that thing to him today? Would you be willing to come back to him and hear his word one more time and respond rightly? If that's you today, would you raise your hand? God bless you. Anyone else? Father, 